You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Now, last week, as you may remember, I talked about a surprise accidental discovery of life deep under the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. I do love surprises. This this week, I want to mix it up a bit by talking about a surprise accidental discovery of life under the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. (laughs) Kirk. It's a... It's a different story, I promise. Are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure <laughs> yeah. you talked about this last No, week. it's a different story, I promise. Is, is so it about really... barnacles or sponges? It, it's not, no. Uh, this is a really funny coincidence, actually. Uh, I huh. was actually thinking of doing last week's topic, like months ago, and then I got distracted by other things that, like topics I found out about and wanted, got excited about, and eventually I'd actually forgotten about that story, about the, the hole through the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, the story I'm going to tell you today popped onto my radar recently and it actually reminded me of last week's story and that inspired me to bring both of these stories to the show one week after the other so back to back here we go so we're headed back to the wet the weddell sea uh this time the year is 2021 and uh we're with deep sea biologist atun purser and what a um, name we're at i know he's german uh we're actually in familiar territory here we're on the lichner ice shelf once again. Uh, but one of the things I found fascinating to contrast these two stories is that this story takes place on a boat. And that may seem incongruous with being on an ice shelf. Right. You, so you're boat... on a shelf that's ice and you're on a boat. Let me, on let the me ice? help you out. Let me help you out. It's an icebreaker. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so you're breaking but up What the this ice instantly shelf. made me realize is that the ice thickness must vary considerably across the uh, uh, Lichner ice shelf because in the last story they were drilling it through 3,000 feet of ice right. to get to the water below. And I don't care how awesome your icebreaker boat is. You are not just powering up <laughs> and like, having the stern of the boat crash through a mile of ice, right? That, At least not a mile down. That's pretty so, much like a glacier trying to like plow through with your pickup truck through you, a glacier. Like, no. Yeah, it's not happening. Um, so we're trying to plot through a great glacier with like your, you know, a snow your fingertip or something. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I actually, I was kind of curious. So I looked this up. The most impressive nuclear powered icebreakers in the world are capable of breaking through about nine feet of ice. Okay. <laughs> so. I mean, that's still in, impressive, but like. We're in a different, we're in a different part of the ice shelf. I'm going to assume much closer clearly. to the edge. I didn't know there were nuclear-powered icebreakers, though. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. They're, they're, I think they're the Russian ones that operate um, like in, in the Arctic, not Antarctica. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. So uh, the research team was actually trying to study interactions between surface water and the seafloor. They're, I think, more interested in like the chemistry of what was going on down there. But part of the process involves animals uh, and how they affect the chemistry and whatnot. So... Yep. Um, 
as they were gathering data behind the boat, they were towing a submersible camera and just sort of recording what sea life they may happen to see. All right. Was it a mermaid? And <laughs> oh no, actually, uh, that would that that would have been uh, a bigger story than this. Uh, I, shoot, I now realize that I. <laughs> I guess I'm telling the wrong story this week. It's it's not quite that exciting. I think it's pretty cool though. It's they what they saw was a was a, the Jonah's ice fish. The what? So Jonah's, Jonah's ice fish. Ice fish. Oh. Uh, this is a it's kind of cool looking fish. I'm not going to describe it for you. You you guys all have the power of the internet. Go look it up. Um, but this is a fish that is restricted to the cold waters of the Southern Ocean. So basically, all around Antarctica, they're a really weird cold adapted fish and one of the things you often see noted about them whenever people talk about them is that their blood lacks hemoglobin mm. i just learned about this but it was Did a different right. ice fish it was um, there you go the yes, yes this fish. is this is true of all the ice fish okay That's so if you crazy from if you remember from biology class hemoglobin are the red blood cells in our blood and they're what makes well they're what makes blood red right and they're also pretty important because they're how we transport oxygen throughout our body well in yet another example of nature finding more than one way to do the same thing jonah's ice fish transport oxygen in the plasma of their blood instead of in the hemoglobin what? okay i mean yeah, we transport sort of oxygen like, in our plasma too it's just not yeah. very much of it not particularly useful i mean it's just it's right. just diffused in there um so this just is is so weird. And uh, this is apparently true, like I said, of all the ice fish family. And which I think you, know, you mentioned one, Rachel. There's a, yeah. It's debated a bit, but there's around 20 species or so. They all live in extremely cold water. And I should, I should point out that uh, it's believed that they, they evolved from fish that used to make hemoglobin. This isn't like a separate line of fish that never had it. It's something they still have some of the genes for it. They just don't really make it or use it mm -hmm. um because there's no hemoglobin in their blood it has a lower viscosity or in other words it's thinner and they can get away with this due to some other body adaptations and the fact that very cold water has more dissolved oxygen than warmer water mm -hmm. they have like so they get bigger bigger blood vessels and whatnot they are moving the oxygen the, the, the blood through faster uh, because it's thinner um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, probably it's so cold. It's also good that it's thinner. And it's just, they're so cool. They're, yeah, they're so cool. They're insane. Um, I've heard differing oh. reports that their blood is either white or literally clear, which kind of makes sense if it's pretty much just plasma. Plasma is yeah. clear. Uh, it, oh. oh, wait. So, so Kirk, wait, I have questions. Yeah. And maybe you can answer them. I hope I can answer not. that. <laughs> they don't yeah. have hemoglobin. Do they have right. what otherwise would be known as red blood cells? Probably I don't, not. I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. The reason this, uh, the reason I ask, I mean, one of the reasons is in most animals' bodies, the size right. of capillaries, which are the smallest blood vessels, is mm -hmm. limited by the size of your red blood cells. Because if you go right. smaller than the size of your red blood cell, the, the blood cells can't get through. So it's about the same diameter. Yeah, I, I was kind of using, in my mind, hemoglobin and red blood cells synonymously. But I mean, really, hemoglobin is something in your red blood cells, and it's kind of what makes your red blood cells red. Right. So I, I, 
I wonder if they still have, <laughs> would you call them red blood cells? I think you probably would. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just lacking the actual hemoglobin. That's not something I really dove into because yeah. no. what I was going to tell you next is that as weird as this is, that's not actually the subject of my we oh. do oh, okay you discovered <laughs> so, this so i didn't go i so didn't go away not not and in, whoa, 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 not, and not a new fish make me not wonder a new fish. that i have to take this off my list it's only a new fish for you okay? okay because like scientists knew about this this is not like a new fish they discovered they just found them saw them swimming around under there um okay. and what's interesting is not that they saw one of these fish because like it's a fish they live in that area it was that as they were kind of moving the camera along, they started to see that there were Jonas ice fish nests on the floor of the sea. And when I say they saw nests, I should specify that they found a lot of them. And I mean a lot. Uh, huh. Purser noted that one of his crew had seen nests on the camera and kind of mentioned it. And so then when Purser stopped back to kind of see, oh, how things are going, camera's still working and whatnot, a half hour later, his crew was seeing a bunch of nests again. And he was like, oh, is this like another patch of nests? And they're like, no, no, this is, this is the same patch of nests. We've been going over it for half an hour. What? <laughs> well. Yeah. Well, it gets bigger than that because they kept on watching and they saw nothing but constant ice fish nests on the bottom of the seafloor for the next four hours. Wow. What? And in total, they did four surveys in the area. I was, I'm assuming they were doing like transects. And each time, there were constant nests on the camera. So they were able to do some measurements. And here's what they concluded. Oh, no. The total estimated number of nests under the ice shelf is 60 million nests. What? What? That's amazing. <laughs> right? Now they estimate oh the total my. area of nests takes up 92 square miles oh of seafloor. Goodness gracious. <sighs> they also estimated that there were uh, approximately 1,735 eggs per nest. <laughs> and... Every nest was guarded by like one fish. So we're talking mm-hmm. about millions of fish guarding billions of eggs. Uh, it is like mind blowing. Uh-huh. I tried to put I I tried to put ninety two square miles into context. That's an area that that's larger than like the entire area of the city of Seattle. <sighs> But it's so high. <laughs> right? It's slightly slightly smaller than the entire area of Palm Springs. It's also, for our more international listeners, that's double the size of Paris. What? Yeah. So if you happen to have ever been to any of those places, you start to get an idea of the acreage uh, that's involved. I was also kind of wanting to know about like the density though, right? So mm-hmm. this was, they came up with that there was essentially one nest per every four square meters. And four square meters is, uh, you know, roughly 12 square feet. Mm-hmm. So I picture a box three feet by four feet and plop a nest in the middle and then repeat that tile pattern until you're covering 92 square miles. That's it's like, it's basically like a nest every four feet or so, you know, I mean, it is... Holy crap. Super amazing. Yeah, this is now the largest known nesting colony of fish in the world. 
Yeah. Uh, that again <laughs> was discovered on accident. <laughs> right? They they weren't looking for this. They were trying no. to study like water chemistry. And we're like, oh, let's put a camera down there and see what we can find. Oh, we just discovered the largest nesting colony of fish known in the world. Is not uh, what which we is set out to do. But yeah, it's totally bad. totally cool. Um, it certainly can be studied more. There are already calls out there to put protections in place and preserve this newly discovered natural marvel. Right. Uh, the Ross ice shelf actually has protection now, but this particular ice shelf doesn't have particularly any special protections on mm -hmm. it. And so people are saying like, hey, maybe, you know, this is, uh, I mean, combining this with my story from last week, and it's like, this is probably kind of a special place that we need to protect more than yeah. it already is. So uh, I, I just thought it was super cool. And these two stories just go together that they're two stories of accidental discoveries when people are looking for other things. And they happen to be in the, <laughs> the same, same place. Spot. That is really cool. Uh, which so also, though, I mean, I'm come hearing. on, under the ice shelf is a place we probably haven't, dis yeah. haven't explored as much. So uh, it's yeah. maybe not so surprising that we would find... Um, two things in a place that hasn't been explored as much, but uh, I just thought they're both really awesome stories and wanted to share them with you. I will say my sources included uh, this week's Science Alert and Wikipedia. Ooh. I will say that... So what you're saying, pretty much, is if you want to find something new and unexpected, go to the Weddell Sea. Apparently, that's what I'm saying, mm -hmm. yes. Okay, cool. You'll need some equipment, Go somewhere though. dark yeah. and cold. And I, I tell children often, like, you want to discover some new species. Like, mm -hmm. don't, don't go into mammals. Like, study something that no one else is studying right now. Like, you know. Oh, yeah. Diatom or something. Yes. Like, you got you to, you know, go, so things that are hard to see and people overlook, that's where you're going to find stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, uh, it'll be Rachel's turn to share something amazing. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. Welcome back from break, everyone. In honor, I, I looked ahead because uh, we record these way in advance. Don't, and now, now you're taking the magic away. They all know, now they know that we're... I'm, I'm pretty sure they these are. <laughs> anyway, um, I found out and figured out that this episode actually comes out a couple days after Valentine's Day. So I yes, decided it does, yeah. that I wanted oh. to make it a hearty episode. If I had about known about heart. that, I, I have an episode that I had been saving up for Valentine's Day and I didn't think about it. No, Next no, the year. one you're saving is for Valentine's 2023, Victoria. Yes. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. At this point. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about hearts today. Oh, 
So generally speaking, so hearts, I think, are generally. I'm, I want to say, Rachel, I'm I'm really pumped for this uh, topic. <laughs> yes, that's the spirit. Generally speaking, broad terms, the heart is an organ in a body that is the center of the circulatory system. Okay, it pumps yeah. blood Fair. to all yep. the parts of the body, and generally. The heart regulates the direction of the blood to and from different areas. Usually, but, there yeah. are different parts of the heart. Like dif- there's a there's usually an atria atrium and a ventricle, but not always. So basic. Um, okay. The heart itself. Thank you. The heart itself has its own electrical system, which is. Okay, we nod and we accept this because it's just part of our daily lives, but that's weird. Our bodies have multiple electrical systems and our heart is one of them and it's independent of the rest of our body. Well, not from the rest of our body, but it it has its own electrical system that is different from our brain of sorts. Anyway, so that is what it, it helps the heart do the work of contracting and relaxing. Uh, to pump the blood through the body. Mm-hmm. So that's the basics about hearts. So let's talk about some weird ones. Um, yeah. So cephalopods, this includes squids, octopuses, uh, cuttlefish. Nautiluses. Nautilus. That's the other one. They all have three hearts. So they don't just have one. They have three. Oh. Um, Amazing. Two of those hearts are called brachial hearts, and they are right next to the gills of those cephalopods. And they're specific to pump blood in and out of the gills to get as much oxygen, dissolved oxygen, into the bloodstream as possible. And then the third heart is for pumping blood to the rest of the body. Okay. It's like a main heart and then two that do a lot of work themselves. So three hearts. Yeah. Nice. Pretty yep. cool. <clears throat> this is this this is why, by the way, that like the cephalopod version of Cupid shoots three arrows at oh. once. Oh. You have to hit all three. Maybe it's like a three, like a tr- little mini trident mm. with three tips. I think that would be more accurate. Damaging? And damaging, yes. <laughs> All right, sorry, uh, moving on. Blue whales, uh, no surprise, whales, yeah. have the largest heart of right. any creature. How would you compare it? How would you compare it to the size of like a Volkswagen Beetle? Whales have hearts the size of golf carts. That's okay. <clears throat> a little smaller. Yeah, still pretty large though. Still quite they, large. They weigh about four hundred pounds. <laughs> Oof. It's a heavy golf cart. Uh huh. <laughs> Wow. And per beat, the blue whale will pump out 40 to 60 gallons of blood. Wow. To, to, oh. to give some oh, context and perspective, human beings have about 1.2 to 1.5 gallons of blood in our entire body. Yeah. <laughs> so... Wow. So you're 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 pumping out like 60 humans up there. Yeah. Did uh um, did you happen to see how wide their aorta is? 
as you at least can walk hard. through it. Yeah, I I did see it. I there. You could walk through it, or I could walk. You know what? Sure. <laughs> the taller than a Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to understand the different size humans. That's that's fair. That's fair. I didn't look that deep into that one. It's very so large. The average size human yes. could walk through it. Very large. Gotcha. Very. That's uh, impressive. Like I, there's an aquarium somewhere that has a, or used to at least have an anatomy of a blue whale, and ha- you could walk through a blue whale heart somewhere. I can't remember exactly where it was. Cool. Um, other cool and weird hearts, strange hearts, you might say. Uh, zebra fish are... Mm-hmm. Ooh, what about that? They are able to regenerate up to 20% of their heart tissue if it is damaged. And they're able to do this within two months. Impressive. Like completely yeah, regenerate cool. their heart tissue, which we haven't really been able to see huh. anywhere else. No. Um, we talked about the big, biggest heart. Um, and now we're going to talk about a little tiny one. Uh, the pygmy shrew has the fastest heartbeat. It is a very, very small mammal. Of uh, It has the ha- fastest heartbeat of any mammal at 1,200 beats per minute. Just yeah. Wow. There's a reason why small rodents and mammals like that do not have very long lifespans. Yeah. Um, wow. I just think about like, you know, when you're doing this, this is, uh, this is an insight to how mm-hmm. my brain works that this is where I went with this. I thought about when I'm doing a CPR class, they want you to do like mm-hmm. pump uh, to stay yeah. alive. It's uh, like the, the rhythm, you know, alive. pump, uh, stay yeah. alive. And I'm thinking if you had to do that to a shrew, I just don't, I mean, <laughs> You, you wouldn't that's be too able many, to do that's it. Too, you can't. No, you can't do it. <laughs> uh, shrew has a heart attack. The shrew is just, can't I'm do it. sorry. That's, that's where my brain goes. My, my brain goes to the song Staying Alive at 1,000 BPM. Fun fact, uh, Dancing Queen also works for doing CPR. Mm. And sadly, so does Another One Bites the Dust. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Maybe don't use that one if you're giving someone CPR. Um Moving on, uh, giraffes. <laughs> okay. Uh, gir- yeah, let's giraffes, giraffes. Have lopsided hearts. Uh, well, okay. Uh, most things kind of do. Like more lopsided than right. normal. Yeah. The thickness of their ventricle wall is like triple. Oh, no. It's more than triple. It. For example, the left wall ventricle is about eight centimeters thick, uh, whereas the right ventricle wall uh, is about one and a half centimeters thick. Okay. Right. I have an idea why that might be, but what do you tell us? So the right side only pumps blood into the lungs, all right, Mm -hmm. which are right next to the heart. Which on a giraffe is right next to it, right? The left side has to pump blood everywhere else, including up. The six feet to the head. <laughs> so yeah. the, <laughs> right. the thickness is pretty much the muscle power. So it has a really muscular heart to help pump blood up and down. Well, that's cool. Which is really so cool. its heartbeat goes thloom, thloom. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, frogs and reptiles, instead of having a four-chambered heart, actually have a three-chambered heart, so they have 
two atria and rather than well they have two atria and one ventricle rather than two ventricles except in the crocodiles the crocodile has four chambers mm-hmm. and the weird thing about crocodiles it well there's many weird things but um it, it uses that but it also has an extra aorta leading from the heart down to okay. bypass its lungs into its stomach. So whenever the Wait, crocodile what? has... Like not no, into like its stomach, to but its to, stomach. Its, right. to its... To bring blood to the stomach. Okay, yeah. And it does this to... Um, it allows the uh, the blood to bypass the lungs and get to the stomach to have the carbon dioxide that's in the blood to produce more gastric acid to allow them to um, quickly dissolve the bones in the chunks of the prey that it swallows up to 10, fi- t- oh, up to wow. 10 times faster than the mammals uh, that do that. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but not all animals have hearts. Some have no hearts. Some animals have pseudo hearts, including earthworms. Hmm. How do those work? Well, that's a great question. So, earthworms. Oh man, how do I really describe earthworms? <laughs> um. Well, they're okay, they're, they're long, long and slimy. And they're slimy. And... Yes, that's also true. Well, how do they? They, so have, they have blood, blood. right? Well, not all, everything has blood, That's so true. it gets it gets bizarre. So, how earthworms uh, work is they um, they have like they have cilia. No, no, no. That's starfish. Starfish have cilia that move water through their things, which is completely different. But an earthworm, um, so they have pseudo hearts. Uh, they either have five hearts or no heart. So they, they don't have like a chambered muscular organ that we talk about. We I talked about earlier. But they have five special blood mm-hmm. vessels that contract in order to pump blood through the body. So gotcha. that's how mm-hmm. that one works. Well, they're, they're, they're pretty tiny. It probably doesn't require it a does large not, heart. It does not, no. Move, it, move everything around no, in there? it does not. Um, which is strange because like okay you don't have a heart but you do that fine um a cockroach however uh has there they do have a heart and it has 12 to 13 chambers oh wow uh and they're all arranged in a row um and they use separate muscles to pump the blood through uh their body um, so if, if something happens, they're able to just keep going because it doesn't really affect them all that much. Um, insects in general, if something were to happen to one it, of those, one of mean, the chambers, like it doesn't really bother them in the slightest because okay. they're just like, okay, cool. That's fine. Um, the rest will pick up the slack. Exactly. Um, sea cool. stars or, uh, starfish, 
and other echinoderms don't really have a heart. Um, like I was saying earlier, they have little tiny cilia, which are like uh, hair-like structures that are beating constantly mm-hmm. to pump seawater uh, hmm. through pipes and bags uh, that are in their body, kind of. Because <laughs> they don't really... Pipes and well, bags. Well, they don't have blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... I that's really all I have for you today. Like there's lots of other strange hearts out there, but I don't want to take up too much of our time. I do want to uh, give credit where credit's due and say, talk, say that National Geographic had a really great Valentine's Day article. Um, and so did Ocean Conservancy and Atlas Obscura. Uh, there's quite a few that I used, but they all did a great job. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Hey, we're back from the break, and I want to talk about Charles Darwin. I'm ready. Oh, Chucky D. Hi, Chucky Woo-hoo. D. I love Charles Darwin. So as played. most people know, he came up with the idea of natural selection. Uh, you know, within right. a species, individuals are going to have different traits, and some of those will contribute to their reproductive success, leading those successful traits to be passed on to their children and so forth, leading to the gradual evolution of the species. Well, so his first and most famous book on the origin of species was published in 1859, and it made a big splash and was very controversial, and still is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> still yeah. is to some, Congratulations. Yeah. Two, almost 200 years later, still, yeah. still a source. A dubious... Uh, but Darwin okay. saved some of, some of his even more incendiary ideas for his follow-up book 12 years later, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Uh, so besides confirming that, yes, indeed, evolution also applies to humans in this book, yeah. <gasps> Does it? Gasp. He, uh, uh, he greatly yeah. developed his ideas on sexual selection, which was something he mentioned in The Origin of Species, but didn't really talk about that much. So okay. sexual selection is a kind of a form of natural selection that's based on choosing a mate. And he hypothesized this as the reason that males and females can often look very different within a species, and that mm-hmm. some animals have features that would otherwise be detrimental to their survival. Uh, So one form of sexual selection would be males competing with each other for females. So an example would be the antlers of a deer, which, you know, are in fact, um, otherwise a maladaptive feature. Uh, And antlers can get a deer killed by getting tangled in things or tangled in other deer's antlers. Uh, I used to work. Well, and they're extremely, energy intensive to create that also yes um so male male competition is one form of sexual selection the other form is females choosing which male they like best based on how they look or behave uh so the classic example for this is that a peahen is supposed to choose the peacock with the prettiest and longest Ah. tail feathers beautiful Ooh, you have lovely plumage again tail feathers that are let me come on over. You seem to have the nicest plumage. Yes, yes, thank you. 
Just accept that weird voice from me. There you go. That's Rachel's peahen voice. Yeah, that's what peahen. There you go. Yeah. So following the publication of this book, the ideas about male competition were mostly accepted pretty quickly. Uh, surprise, <laughs> it confirmed a lot of pre-existing biases about male aggression and female passivity. The ideas on female choice and male ornament were largely ignored uh, until the 1930s of course. At, mm. to start with um, because they were not considered as important as natural selection. And it was also considered implausible that animals could have a refined enough aesthetic sense to distinguish different male ornaments. Sort of was ascribing mm. like artistic appreciation to animals, okay. which people found um, hard to take in and also the the more active role of the female wasn't really going down so well with you know people at the time i'm rolling my eyes so hard yeah in 1930 ronald fisher who was an english biologist and statistician developed the idea of sexual selection further and noted that there can be he theorized that there could be an accelerating positive feedback loop where females choose the fancier male ornaments and those evolve very quickly um, in response to the females actively choosing them. But this yeah. idea, yeah, Makes so sense. he published this, but the idea wasn't really examined or tested much in, in biological research for 50 years. And I want to talk about the animal that finally did help demonstrate that these ideas are true. And Ooh. this is the long-tailed widow bird. Uh, uh, scientific what? name is, yeah, Euplectes progni. Uh, it's... That, oh, one, that yeah. one, oh, long, long tailed, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. of course, I see that all the time. <sighs> uh, it's common in the grasslands of southern Africa from Kenya to Angola to South Africa. Okay, the, okay. the main bird itself is about so they, they, they actually look quite a bit like a red winged blackbird. They're all right, uh, the males are all black, they have red and okay. white or yellowish shoulder epaulets, and a mm -hmm. Um, their bill's white. It's kind of a conical bill. Uh, fairly strong resemblance to a red-winged blackbird, actually. Um, and they're about 20 centimeters long in their body. But breeding males, the tail feathers can be an extra 30 to 50 centimeters long. So that's like a foot to foot and a half longer <laughs> than a non-breeding nice. male or a female. So it's pretty dramatic. They fly with their tails kind of drooping down. It's an effect that's Indeed. called keeled. So it, it sort of is in a, a sort of a fan shape in a vertical line under their body. Mm -hmm. uh, I read a rumor that they are unable to fly in wet weather, but then I read another source that seemed a little more credible that said that this is not actually true, that they can fly in wet weather. Uh, but, Fair you enough. know, those long tail feathers do hamper them somewhat as is seen in, sure. in peacocks and other species with very long tails. So right. the guy who figured out about the long-tailed widow bird and sexual selection is Malta Andersson. It was at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And so in 1982, okay. he was doing some other work in Southern Africa, and he became interested in the widow bird and its ridiculously long tail. Mm -hmm. And he came up with a very clever experiment to test whether females would indeed prefer males with longer tails. Clever, but quite simple. Does it cut so, tails? yeah, the long-tailed widow bird is polygamous and a male defends a territory with females that he mates with nesting within the territory. Mm -hmm. And 
So Anderson captured and manipulated the tail feathers of a whole bunch of different males and then observed the effect that this had on their mating success. So some males had their tails shortened to 14 centimeters, and then he took the feathers that he cut off of those guys and glued them onto the tails of other males. So they had a, like extra, <laughs> extra 25 centimeters of tail on their already long tails. Long. Oh my gosh. Okay. And then there were, uh, two types of controls actually. So some males he just captured and released, and then some he captured, cut their tail feathers and re-glued them right back on in case the huh. gluing, cutting and gluing procedure itself was somehow affecting the, the right. outcomes. Wow. I mean, I, I salute his commitment to uh, controlling his uh, yeah. variables. That is, that's impressive. Also, this paper has the coolest graph. So he represents the results in a bar graph showing, you know, how many, how many breeding females per type of male um, treatment. And mm-hmm. on top of each bar, he perches a little silhouette of a male with the tail hanging down along the bar, and it shows you like whether it was cut, whether it was an extra long tail or extra short tail, so you can just see right away. Yeah, well done. Good job, well done. Sir. Good job. Um, at any rate, following the treatment, the males with these super extra long tails with the glued-on extra feathers had significantly more mating success than the other males. So he demonstrated that in fact females did prefer these extra long tails. But, you know, they, they had a lot of trouble flying around. And yeah. this, is, this is something else that Fisher talked about, which is, and I think Darwin too, which is that there's this, um, this kind of interplay between females choosing the fancier and fancier ornaments on the males, but then that comes up against physical limitations on what males can survive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is still, this is still, there's a, So other scientists have repeated this experiment in other species of birds that have long tails or or similar ones. And and it's been demonstrated many times that sexual selection by females does in fact occur. Um, But there's still a lot of back and forth about what the ornaments represent, whether they are merely kind of an outward show of how fit the male is. Like Mm -hmm. if he's very fit, he can grow these extra long tails or if it really is that plus the females just really liking the way something looks? Mm-hmm. Right. How do yeah. you tease that out? That's because you often hear where it's like, uh, you know, I teach a lot about birds and they say, oh, well, if this, if the, the male is really brightly colored, uh, let's say that takes a lot of carotenoids. We talked about carotenoids mm-hmm. earlier. And you need to have a healthy diet in order to create those bright colors. The females then know that, oh, this is a male who knows how to find a good, you know, diet. And he's going to be a good caretaker for the children. And I'm going, is that really what's going through the bird's mm-hmm. brain? You know what I mean? Are they, they like, oh, shiny. Hmm, I bet he's going to be a good. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, let's be honest. How much are humans right. the same way? I mean. You know, do you follow someone because you're like, oh, you know what? I I bet they're going to be a really great caregiver. You know, this has been talked about with uh, too many details, but like they'll say, oh, I I, I bet she's going to be able to feed my children. (laughs) And you go, really? Mm. That's not that that's not a thing that ever goes through your head. Someone sees someone goes. Uh And that's about (laughs) as far as it goes. You know what I mean? Like there's and why why do we think it's any different in animals? 
I, that have, in a lot of cases, a less developed brain, that, where they're not even having like language or anything, that they're 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 not making complex calculations about reproductive fitness. It's just right. like, oh, I like mm-hmm. that. That seems so much more plausible to me. You know, and there there are biologists or ornithologists out there arguing like that. For example, I found a paper of when arguing that you know bower birds have an aesthetic sense. And those are those birds that create these sort of elaborate little huts and stuff with colored things in Australia. Um, right. Oh, elaborate barely yes. begins to describe them, a, a topic for another day, but yeah. And then there's this book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's this book that came out um, a few years ago by this guy. Uh, what was his name? Um, Richard Prum. He, he wrote a book called The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. And he, he really argues that, you know, animals can sense beauty. Eh. He also gets a lot of pushback from evolutionary biologists who are like, well, maybe, kind of, not really. Uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a debated point. It's really, it's, it's yeah. complicated, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, then you have to think about, like, well, why do we intrinsically go, ooh, you, you're pretty. Do our brains, like, in our, like, way deep down, are they like, oh, this person looks this way. They're put together. They're doing all of these. uh, they, They look however you particularly prefer. And they seem like they'll they'll be able to provide kind of thing Mm -hmm. or be able to support like way 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 back in our brain where we're not even conscious of that it's possible it's it's i mean it's if we can't even really understand it in (laughs) ourselves the the species that we Mm -hmm. are makes it pretty tough to really understand it in other species yeah but if we can't even articulate it for like our own person. Like, I can't really tell you why I think my wife is the most beautiful woman in the entire world, which by the way she is, but <laughs> like, uh, I, I, there, I, I can't put my finger mm-hmm. on that. Right. It's just, it's just something that I know to be true. So it's like, how do you, uh, Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fascinating. Thank you, Victoria. Well, it actually reminds me of a fun topic now that I'm going to have to add to my list. Uh, that uh, is tangentially related. So people will be hearing that at some point too. Interesting. All right. Mm. Well, thank you all, everybody. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Keep you in suspense. <laughs> we'll end it there. <laughs> we'll hear about that another time. Thanks for coming along in the journey. Strange by nature. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. 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 Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.